Three decades after the end of the so-called Cold War, and as the obvious danger of climate catastrophe looms, the threat of nuclear war and thus annihilation reemerges as a real and growing danger. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to this week's episode of The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today we're talking with John Bellamy Foster. He is the editor of Monthly Review. He's a professor of sociology at the University of Oregon. He's the author of several widely influential books, including Marx's Ecology, Materialism and Nature, Ecology Against Capitalism, Naked Imperialism, the U.S. Pursuit of Global Dominance. More recently, The Return of Nature, Socialism, and Ecology. He has a new book coming out on August 23rd. It's called Capitalism in the Anthropocene, Ecological Ruin or Ecological Revolution. John Bellamy Foster, welcome to The Socialist Program. Pleased to be here. Thank you for joining. You have a very important article It's called Notes on Exterminism for the 21st Century Ecology and Peace Movements. And it's talking about what I said in the introduction. As a matter of fact, you might have noticed some of those words were actually just lifted basically in a paraphrased way from your article. Since 1991, since the collapse of the Soviet Union and the socialist camp, The idea of nuclear war, the threat of nuclear war, something that you and I probably were very well aware of since we were kids, uh, since the Cuban Missile Crisis and maybe before, that receded. That danger or the perception of that danger receded. If anything, people focused in the last 30 years on the danger of possible climate catastrophe, exterminism or the annihilation of society or human beings or species as we know it and know them uh, seem to be coming from the danger of climate catastrophe. And here we are a couple months after uh, the Russian uh, intervention, military invasion into Ukraine on February 24th. And obviously there is the danger, again, it's being talked about again in the media, of a possible escalation of this proxy war And I believe it is a proxy war between the U.S. and Russia. The Ukrainians are doing all the bleeding, but behind the Ukrainians, the American Pentagon, the U.S. Pentagon's advanced weapons, intelligence services are deeply engaged in the war with Russia. You can clearly see that if anything, the Biden administration does not want the war to end. It doesn't want a negotiated end. It could have negotiated an end before there was a beginning, in fact in the last three months when Russia was identifying red lines to which the American government officials said, those are non-starter demands. You don't tell us who joins NATO. You don't tell Ukraine what military alliance they can be in or not be in. So the U.S. said to the Russians, look, your demands 
to keep Ukraine out of NATO or to keep American advanced conventional and nuclear weapons out of Ukraine. Those demands are a non-starter. And at the same time, they poured billions of dollars of new weapons into Ukraine. So clearly the U.S. government was not alarmed about the danger of a war. And I feel and we feel that they're quite happy with the war. And in fact, the danger here, the danger of escalation is the U.S. is determined to win the war, not bring the war to an end, but determined to win. They're determined to weaken Russia, perhaps change the government in Russia, and Russia is determined not to lose. And so therein lies the logic for escalation in this new danger. Anyway, let's get started there. Again, this huge change in public consciousness is beginning to take place where the public is, is being told, Hey, guess what? Nuclear war is perhaps back on the agenda. Well, it, it certainly is being talked about, and the Russians put their nuclear forces on high alert early on in this crisis. And if we continue to escalate the conflict in Ukraine, there is a very strong possibility that it could escalate into the use of tactical nuclear weapons and into a general thermonuclear exchange, which would really spell annihilation for, for humanity. And to understand this, you have to go back to, say, 1979. And I won't give a lot of history, but, but at that time, during the end of the Carter administration, the United States decided to place um, nuclear weapons, intermediate nuclear weapons, Pershing missiles, and other nuclear weapons, cruise missiles in Europe. And that directly threatened the Soviet Union at the time. And the United States took on a policy of what's called counterforce strategy, not counter value strategy, which is what we know as mutual assured destruction, that if a nuclear war occurs, both sides are destroyed. Rather, the United States took on a counterforce strategy, which has dominated ever since, in which the object was to destroy the nuclear forces of the other side and their command centers in a first strike to develop what's called nuclear primacy in this respect. And that was being pushed in um, 1979, a huge anti-nuclear movement developed in Europe and in the United States with a nuclear freeze. And during the Gorbachev period, this was uh, all put to a stop. And then there was the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991. And there was a debate within U.S. security circles between the minimalists and the maximalists. The minimalists said, we'll stay with mutual assured destruction. The maximalists decided to pursue a nuclear primacy where the United States would have first strike capability, therefore be able to theoretically destroy the nuclear weapons on the other side before they were launched and pick off any other remaining ones with anti-ballistic missile systems. And so that's been our strategy ever since. It was a debate that occurred in, in national security circles, but not in the public. And along with the enlargement of NATO, 
which began in 1997, the United States was also pursuing nuclear primacy. And these are very closely related because nuclear primacy has not only to do with developing counterforce weapons, but it also has to do with placing nuclear weapons in Eastern Europe and, and particularly the Ukraine, where the Russians would have absolutely no time in which to respond and it would be seen as a dagger at their throat. That's how they see it. That's their red line. They can't um, permit that to happen and retain any kind of sense of national security or autonomy or position as a great power. So this is uh, a conflict that's very much about nuclear power. And NATO itself is a nuclear alliance. There are nuclear weapons throughout Europe and Eastern Europe that are all targeting Russia. And this is really at the center of this dispute. It's why Russia insists that the Ukraine has to be neutral, not member of any alliance. And in that respect, you know, from the standpoint of humanity as a whole, I think that that is a reasonable demand. I think our a common ground in this war ought to be that we don't want to create a nuclear winter, which I could talk about, but the science of nuclear winter is very well established. We don't want to lead to the annihilation of the population of the earth. Yeah, I want to get to that because in your article, Notes on exterminism, you talk about some of the key debates, counterforce being one, the debate about nuclear winter being another. There's a few debates, and I want to have an opportunity in this interview to kind of walk the lay audience through some of these terms. Again, for people who are new to this, for younger activists, you know, at the time the U.S. dropped the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the U.S. had a monopoly on nuclear weapons. And it showed the world that it was prepared to use them when no one else had them. And then the Soviets got nuclear weapons. And over time, there was a, a kind of strategic parity, not an exact parity, but an equilibrium was established. And that's when we have what you were referring to, mutually assured destruction, where the premise of an arms control architecture was that if either side started a nuclear war, both sides would be destroyed. They'd both be mutually guaranteed or assured of destruction, and that became a deterrent. And then in 1979, during the last years of the Carter administration, was Vignu Brzezinski as the national security advisor, and his, his legacy lives on here. The U.S. moved to the strategy of getting nuclear primacy, meaning let's win a nuclear war. Let's be able to show that we can win a nuclear war. And even if we don't fight it, the fact that we have that potential, as Daniel Ellsberg has said over and over again, and especially in his Doomsday book, that becomes an operational sort of a, a card to play in global politics. Now, I want to just give some of that quick background to bring us up to some of what these debates will be, because, John, in the public media right now, I saw the Wall Street Journal. I was astonished. I opened it up, the opinion page on, on April 28th. The U.S. should show it can win a nuclear war, you know, an op-ed piece, but it was from cover to cover, wall to wall on the opinion page. Then MSNBC, this wasn't about Ukraine, but the same idea that we're going to fight Russia or we're going to fight China. 
they did this interview with the Center for uh, New American Security, one of the neocon outfits. And I guess all of the think tanks, maybe with one or two exceptions, are neocon outfits at this point. They had a public exposure of how the U.S. would actually carry out war with China, another nuclear power. And it seems to me that this is part of the normalizing of this idea that nuclear war can be it can be engaged in and we can win. We can win a nuclear war, meaning mutually assured destruction is old hat. It's passe. I want to play this video clip for you and for the audience and then get your reactions to it. This is MSNBC. As the White House continues its focus on providing Ukraine with the support it needs in its war against Russia, President Biden will turn his attention to another region today with its own security concerns. It's Southeast Asia. The president will host Southeast Asian leaders at the White House as the U.S. seeks to assure our allies in that region that it is committed to their security amid a looming threat from China. The timing of this meeting happens to come as our latest episode of Meet the Press Reports takes you inside something that's never been seen on camera. A full day war game exercise that imagines how America would react to a Chinese attempt at essentially invading and taking Taiwan. Here's a sneak peek. As you can see here on the map is a very large concentration of Chinese People's Liberation Army forces at potential ports of debarkation for an invasion. We want to focus on uh, a last-ditch effort to deter. This is a time to be sending the strongest possible message to Beijing, both privately and publicly, that there will be very severe costs if they actually go through with this. All right. That's just an infomercial for the Center for a New American Century. Professor, your reactions? Well, first of all, it's really important to understand that in 2006, there was an article by the Council on Foreign Relations and Foreign Affairs that declared that the United States had or was close to nuclear primacy that it had nuclear primacy with respect to China and was close to that with respect to Russia so that uh, the United States could pull off a first strike. Now, there are real questions in that respect with regard to Russia, but China has very few nuclear weapons compared to ours. Their nuclear submarines do not have a low enough acoustic level to to really be protected against our surveillance. They can be detected. So the notion is that the United States can win a nuclear war against China. And China, of course, is the ultimate threat because of its economic power. But they're talking about nuclear war against China even more than Russia because they do have they believe in the U.S. security circles, nuclear primacy with respect to China. This is really what it's all about. The other thing to recognize is that in the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, there were very strict boundary limits. Neither side attacked the inner perimeter of the other side. There were rules basically on this, but This period right now is much more aggressive. I mean, Ukraine is an independent nation, but it represents a red line for Russia in the sense that any inclusion of Ukraine in in NATO is basically entering Russia's security perimeter, particularly because of nuclear weapons. And Taiwan is actually part of China. And we have adhered to the one China policy 
And yet the Biden administration is now declaring, in effect, that Taiwan is part of the U.S. national security perimeter and not China's, and that we are ready to fight a war with China over Taiwan, which could be provoked in various ways. But this would inevitably be a nuclear war which is played down in this. Um, The United States claims that it can dominate every level of escalation. So they don't present it as a a nuclear war, but it certainly would escalate into that if there were an attack on China of the kind that MSNBC was talking about. Yeah. So in 2002, again, this was about 11 years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the dissolution of the socialist camp, the Bush administration left, unilaterally left the anti-ballistic missile treaty, which was a key element of Cold War arms control agreements and architecture. Matter of fact, Putin said a few years later, canceling the ABM treaty by the U.S. unilaterally was a game changer. And then, as you point out in your article, that's on Monthly Review. You can go to, people can find it at MR Online or in the Monthly Review magazine. You point out that the U.S. also unilaterally canceled the INF Treaty, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, which was signed by Reagan and Gorbachev in 1986. That was, again, four years after massive demonstrations in Europe and a million people marching in Central Park in New York City demanding a nuclear freeze, but it was triggered by the introduction, as you pointed out, in Europe of these short-range or medium-range missiles that had a flight time of six minutes to their Soviet targets. And then the U.S. cancels the Open Skies Treaty a little while ago. And then in 2018, the U.S. changed its military doctrine. The Pentagon released a new quadrennial defense report saying, well, the war on terror, that's passe, that's old time. Now we're preparing for major power conflict. So you have canceling the ABM, canceling the INF, canceling the Open Skies Treaty, preparing for major power conflict as the official doctrine of the United States. And then in September, signing a military agreement with the Zelensky government in Ukraine. It's obvious that the U.S. is actually getting ready to do, as you put it, to fight and to beat Russia and China. And thus the nuclear issue comes at the, very much at the center of that discussion. And again, I wanna ask you to explain to, let's say someone's tuning into our show, they don't know a lot about politics, they're hearing this for the first time, 30 years after the Soviet Union collapsed, 30 years after the Cold War ended, why is the US getting ready for nuclear war? Why is the US seeking nuclear primacy? What's the, quote, threat posed by either Russia or China, say, to the people of the United States? Well, I I don't think there is a threat. But um, you pointed out that Brzezinski in 1979 had led the way in in putting these intermediate nuclear weapons, counterforce weapons, in Europe. They're designed to destroy the nuclear arsenal on the other side principally. And Brzezinski was also the leading figure behind the enlargement of NATO and that strategy. And so both of these strategies were developed at the same time, the enlargement of NATO and the um, 
nuclear primacy, the U.S. search for nuclear primacy or first strike capability through counterforce weapons aimed at the arsenals at the other side. And Brzezinski was very clear in his book, The Grand Chessboard, Board, that the goal is U.S. supremacy over the entire world, over Eurasia, as well as the rest of the world. And that's the explicit goal. It's not really concealed at all in U.S. Uh, national security doctrines. To do this, they have to threaten the nuclear deterrence on the other side. When you're talking about nuclear primacy, there are a number of ways in which a, a country tries to defend its nuclear deterrence. One is redundancy, simply by having more nuclear weapons. Another one is concealment. A third one is hardening of missile sites. And the fourth one, which is most difficult to achieve, is to control the distance of the enemy's nuclear weapons from your own country and sites. All of these are under attack in terms of U.S. strategy. The New START Treaty, which limits nuclear weapons, is actually the United States has supported that because redundancy is one way of protecting deterrence. And the START, New START Treaty basically says you can only have so many nuclear weapons, which makes the other side more vulnerable to a counterforce attack, a first strike. And concealment is something that we've managed to have surveillance and detection techniques the United States has developed where it's much harder for the other great powers to conceal their weapons through land-based mobile missiles or through nuclear submarines. They're able to be detected. And hardening of missile sites no longer works against the extreme accuracy of the nuclear weapons now. So this is all part of creating nuclear primacy. And when the United States left the ABM treaty, that's part of creating nuclear primacy and counterforce strategy as well, because the only use of the anti-ballistic missile systems, the missile defense systems, is to strike any nuclear weapons that survive after a first strike. They're absolutely useless otherwise, because there would be too many missiles and too many decoys. But as a kind of a cleanup operation, they're important. And we walked out of the Intermediate Missile Treaty because that allows us to put nuclear weapons in Europe, in Eastern Europe, that reduce the distance and the time in which to respond on the other side. So all of this is part of a, of a counterforce strategy. The Russians view this as the United States stalking their nuclear deterrence so that MAD no longer applies, so that they, they can't respond. And this is really crucial to understand. It's understood in nuclear circles, but it's not understood by the general public, which, as you say, has not been paying attention to this over the last few decades. Yeah. So again, Mutually assured destruction. The assumption is both sides are destroyed. That becomes a deterrent. Counterforce, which you explain in detail in your article, notes on exterminism for the 21st century, ecology and peace movements for the 21st century movements of, for peace and ecology. And you talk about exterminism or the danger of extermination, both from climate catastrophe and now more and more from the possibility of nuclear war. And the article is an extremely important piece because 
not only do you identify the problem and break it down and show its historical evolution within U.S. policymakers' calculations, but obviously you're making the point that the peace movement in America and globally and the ecology movement globally have to take into account now the dangers posed by both climate catastrophe and nuclear war. And you root the reemergence of this dual danger in capitalism itself. And so I think the suggestion that you're coming to is that the peace movement and the ecology movement can't simply be issues about peace and war. They have to be issues about what social and economic order will we have in society because the current one, the capitalist world economic order, is actually the root of these two twin existential crises. Anyway, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. I want people to go. I'm going to keep advertising your article and encouraging people to go and to read it at Monthly Review. But counterforce, again, it seems to me, and I think this is the point that you're making, but I want you to talk about it, that the idea that the U.S. can attack the enemy's nuclear weapons when they have not yet been fired, destroy, say, 95% of them, and then use missile defense shields to pick up the remnants, that this, in a way, is a fantasy. It's a dangerous fantasy. It's playing chicken with a premise of nuclear war where the U.S. can actually either get the enemy to capitulate or destroy the enemy if it doesn't capitulate. But the enemy, in this case, China or Russia, even though they're not as technologically developed or don't have as much in terms of military resources, they'll use asymmetrical technologies to counter the counterforce, like hypersonic weapons, which you also discuss. Let's just talk about this because MAD seemed to be, mutually assured destruction seemed to be like the nuclear powers coming to terms with reality and counterforce is the pursuit of a fantasy that you can actually fight and win a nuclear war. Yeah, the counterforce doctrine started um, with Robert McNamara, who thought, oh, it would be a great idea if we could just destroy the other side's nuclear weapons and not destroy their cities and in a first strike and everything would be fine. We'd win a nuclear war. But he, he quickly abandoned it because he saw this as creating even greater dangers and a, a greater nuclear arms race and greater potential of a nuclear war. And he adopted MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction, which was the U.S. policy up until the late 1970s. But then we, the U.S. returned to the notion of counterforce and first strike. The United States has always been on record that it is willing to use nuclear weapons against a nuclear or a non-nuclear power that it considered to be a threat. Everything they say is on the table. So the, the first strike policy and counterforce has been built in from the beginning. And counterforce capabilities are really, the most important thing is the accuracy of U.S. missiles that allow them to target the hardened missile sites and other aspects or the, the detection of the weapons on the other side. But the accuracy has allowed the U.S. to destroy hardened missile sites with nuclear, smaller nuclear weapons or even non-nuclear missiles, it is believed. Getting at this point where, where the national security interests think that 
they're close to uh, nuclear primacy means that they start preparing for nuclear war and being more aggressive towards the other side and so on. So it is a very, very dangerous situation. One thing to understand, I think, which you emphasize, is that it's a fantasy that actually McNamara discovered, and we know that to destroy the nuclear capability of the other side, you have to destroy the command centers as well, which are in the cities. So counterforce doesn't mean that the cities aren't targeted. It will uh, be a full nuclear engagement. So it's a fantasy that this can be pulled off. It would actually result in a nuclear winter annihilation for the world population. And Russia and China recently, in order to protect their deterrence, have developed hypersonic missiles, Mach 6 or over. And uh, these are weapons that the United States doesn't have, but China calls it, they see it as a kind of a, a mace that's used, assassin's mace, they call it, that is used against a stronger power. Because U.S. first strike capability is based on on the ABM systems, the missile defense systems that will finish off any deterrence, that's any nuclear weapons that are fired after a first strike. But the hypersonic missiles cannot be struck down by ABM systems because they have enormous speed and they don't follow a fixed trajectory. They're maneuverable. So they cannot be stopped by missile defense systems. And this is being used to protect the deterrence by both Russia and China to protect their deterrence and to assure that MAD is still present. They they simply have a policy of MAD that if they're attacked, they can destroy the other side. The United States policy is different. The United States policy is one of counterforce and first strike and nuclear primacy at this stage. And even the the ABM systems that are placed in Romania and I think Estonia, but right near Russia and Eastern Europe now are they are Aegis nuclear missile defense systems, which can also uh, be offensive nuclear missile systems. So they can just turn around and make these into offensive missile systems. And they're placed very close to Russia at present. So this is a dangerous situation. I don't care what side you are on the Ukraine war. I, I agree with the analysis presented here. But I don't think that anyone who is sane wants to see a nuclear holocaust and a nuclear winter destroying all of humanity. There is no winnable nuclear war. Yeah. And the striking part of this is the cavalier way in which U.S. government officials and policymakers are talking about the scenarios that bring real dangers of nuclear war. And no one's sounding the alarm. I mean, it's odd when you have Henry Kissinger, who, you know, was when I was 18 and we were organizing against the war in Vietnam, we considered Henry Kissinger to be the worst of the worst, that he was a war criminal, that he was responsible with Nixon for the saturation bombing of North Vietnamese peasant villages. You couldn't get worse than Henry Kissinger. And here we are, John, in 2022, where Henry Kissinger says, well, wait a second, you can't actually discount Russia and China's legitimate interests, and there needs to be negotiations. And he's being scorched like he's 
some sort of like marginalized, radical, hippie, peacenik guy. So Kissinger never changed. What's changed is the political environment so that somebody like Kissinger, who's maintaining the same position, which he always maintained that you had to have what might be called real politique, where you you look at a country like Russia and say, it's too big. You can't pretend that it's going to be America's neo-colony and you can dictate to it or threaten it relentlessly without them doing something. And the same with China. So he, he had sort of a realistic view, but now the realistic view is like considered like an outlier position. And you have what I mentioned, the U.S. should show it can win a nuclear war. That's in the Wall Street Journal. Mitt Romney had a piece in the New York Times. You know, we have to prepare for Putin's worst weapons, meaning getting ready for nuclear war. Anyway, I want to just say that, but then go on to another part of this, which is, and again, this goes to the issue of how, what a fantasy this is, a criminal, dangerous fantasy, because the U.S., if it starts a nuclear war or it ends up in a situation where tit for tat, it leads to nuclear war of any type, you're suggesting in your article that there will be what's called nuclear winter. And you cite Daniel Ellsberg's book and other scientific studies. Let's just talk about nuclear winter and why it does lead to extermination, because it too became a point of controversy where the cold warriors of the nuclear warriors said, hey, hold on, your whole idea that nuclear war is so bad that it's going to destroy everything, that's not scientific, that's kind of made up stuff. So don't listen to Ellsberg, don't listen to Carl Sagan. Anyway, let's just talk about nuclear winter. Well, I wanted to mention that the realists, however bad they were, the realist cold warriors like George Kennan, and Henry Kissinger and Robert McNamara were all minimalists in the debate between the minimalists and the maximalists. They were against the pursuit of nuclear primacy and the enlargement of NATO. The ideologues among the nuclear planners went for the maximalist strategy and were caught in that. So it's, it is an irony, as you said, that the old cold warriors of our generation were the ones who were opposed to the current U.S. strategy. But in terms of nuclear winter, you know, it was first recognized by the Soviets and Soviet and U.S. scientists in, well, beginning in, really in the 1960s in a way, but it became formalized in a model in 1983 that played a, a major role in reducing the nuclear escalation during the Reagan period. Carl Sagan was a major figure in the promotion of the nuclear winter analysis. And basically the, the notion is that the main threat in terms of casualties, in terms of deaths from a nuclear war, are the firestorms in the cities that can take up hundreds of square miles in a thermonuclear exchange. So a city can be hit by a nuclear bomb seven times or 40 times the size of the Hiroshima bomb, and this would create a firestorm in an area over 100 square miles. And this is played down in U.S. nuclear policy and defense documents. They know that the leading cause of death from nuclear war is the firestorms, but they say, well, we can't calculate what that would be. 
And so they leave it out of their analysis. But by leaving it out of their analysis, as Daniel Ellsberg says, they also leave out something else. Where there is fire, there's smoke. And um, that if you have attacks on 100 different cities, you will have firestorms that will loft smoke and soot into the stratosphere where it can't be rained out. And in a general thermonuclear exchange involving the five leading nuclear powers, it would cut off 70% of all solar radiation in the Earth. Harvests would end, temperatures would drop by 20 degrees Celsius. It's the opposite of global warming, only more extreme and happening much more rapidly. And while the Northern Hemisphere would be engulfed definitely in a nuclear war, the Southern Hemisphere would, all the population would die off too. There would only be a few remnants of people left on the earth because most of the people on the earth who weren't killed directly by nuclear war would die of starvation. Rain would cease. There'd be no vegetation left. All species dependent on vegetation would die off endized as, as an exaggeration, but, but the studies were replicated. And in the 21st century, in the last few decades, other studies have been carried out, scientific studies that have made it clear over and over again that this would be what would happen in a general nuclear exchange. Even an exchange with 100 atomic bombs between uh, India and Pakistan would, would um maybe uh, would kill 2 billion people um, with um, the um, reduction in, in solar energy to the earth and so on. So this is very serious. It's worse than, than mutual assured destruction because it means global omnicide, the death of the human species in general. Yeah. When you think about all the non-nuclear powers agree that they won't try to acquire nuclear weapons. And the quid pro quo is that the nuclear powers will gradually get rid of their nuclear arsenal. And here you had the Obama administration not necessarily quantitatively adding to the arsenal, but building a new generation of nuclear weapons. And the cost was estimated at about $1 trillion over a 10-year or 20-year period, something like that. I talked to Greg Mello a couple of weeks ago on this show from the Los Alamos study group. And I asked him, how much has the U.S. spent since the Manhattan Project, which was, for those who don't know, the, the project that began the secret construction of the atomic bombs that were dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. How much has the U.S. spent on nuclear weapons? And he said, well, I'm not sure. It might be between 10 and $11 trillion, 10 and $11 trillion for a weapon system that's only been used once in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I mean, it's been used in negotiations as a tool to threaten everybody else, but it's only been dropped once. And we're not encouraging it, people to drop nuclear bombs so that we get more use out of them. That's not my point. But $11 trillion for nuclear weapons. And then you have, in 2018, the U.S. adopts this quadrennial report from the Pentagon and says, yes, major power conflict is now our top priority for the Pentagon. So budgeting, contingency planning, war gaming, 
Everything is for the next era, which is to prepare for major power conflict, which is conflict with these other nuclear powers. And John, it all happened without a debate. There was no debate in Congress, none. I was pretty stunned by this, actually. I live in Washington, D.C. I do a lot of work in the anti-war movement. The stunning emergence of a consensus that the U.S. could or should be prepared to go to war with Russia or China, the other major powers, without a debate, even amongst the liberals inside the Democratic Party, the left wing of the Democratic Party, barely a peep, nobody sounding the alarm, where you think back to, again, to our generation in the 50s and 60s, there was the ban the bomb movement, there was the movement against atmospheric testing, there was the movement for peaceful coexistence, there was a thriving million-fold, tens of millions of liberal-type people who said, let's have better relations with the Soviet Union. Let's not have major power conflict. Let's get rid of nuclear weapons. Let's move towards peace. Let's move towards disarmament. But now we've adopted a policy that inevitably puts the country on the road towards nuclear confrontation, and a consensus emerges without debate. Anyway, I want to get your take about the political phenomena of what's happening in the country or within the summits of the political establishment? Well, it's sort of moved up on the population like a stealth bomber, right? The language is one of ecological modernization. I mean, sorry, the, 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 uh, the languages of nuclear modernization, modernizing our nuclear arsenals. And that sounds very good to everyone. Um, you know, modernization, make them more accurate, more sophisticated. We, we generally believe in that. So they talk about nuclear modernization. But what does that mean? The modernization has to do with, because they already had the ability to destroy whatever target they wanted. They could destroy all of Russia. But what's nuclear modernization mean? It means the development of these counterforce weapons that are more and more accurate, that it's designed to give a qualitative advantage that provides first strike capability. It has nothing to do with maintaining deterrence, particularly as the other side doesn't have counterforce abilities. They rely on mutual assured destruction. So, you know, we hear about nuclear modernization is actually a very aggressive, offensive strategy directed at ensuring or establishing the United States as the unipolar power in the world, the supreme power in the world. And that's the U.S. policy. But the dangers are enormous. In 2007, as uh, NATO enlarged and as these weapon systems are, are moving forward, Putin said a unipolar world cannot happen. What he meant was Russia had all these red lines and it was going to respond. It did not want to be extinguished as a great power. And that was a signal that they were going to react. The same with the Chinese. They don't want to be run over by the United States. They're progressing economically. They will soon pass the United States as the leading economic power. They are very concerned that the United States plans to use military power to prevent China 
from becoming the leading economic force in the world, and they're rightly concerned about it. The United States has a very, very aggressive military posture, which, as you said, is now being directed at the other great powers, basically Russia and China. And they're planning for war on every level. But war between the great powers, the realists always argued, the war between the great powers would lead to nuclear war. It would escalate. There would not be any way to control it. That's the only rational perspective. But the liberal hawks, as well as the neoconservatives that now dominate the policy, have rejected this. And they talk about no-fly zones involving Russia and so on, which would lead almost inevitably to a third world war. And what would that third world war look like? Einstein says the one thing that we know is we would be back to sticks and stones. Yeah, And it's interesting, Kissinger, the realists, at one time there was another wing of the U.S. policy establishment called the Doves, but apparently the Doves have all died already. So we just have, you know, liberal war hawks becoming one and the same with the neocons and this consensus emerging. But it is a fantasy, John, and it's a dangerous fantasy, and the stakes could not be higher, which again is why I want people to to really read your article, especially for those of you who are sort of not familiar with some of the language here, counterforce, mutually assured destruction, people who want peace, but they're not familiar with how this debate and controversy has evolved over the decades. It's really important for people who care about peace and social justice to realize being an activist is not enough. You have to be knowledgeable and informed about what the debates are and how we can intervene in them. I want to get to the final point here, which is, what do we do about it? Because you're arguing that these, the danger of global climate catastrophe could lead to the extermination of life as we know it. Maybe not the extermination of all things, but the extermination of life as we know it. And the same with nuclear war. There is a very big peace sentiment in the United States and around the world. There's a very big, strong sentiment. I talk to young people all the time. They grew up thinking extermination is coming. There's kind of a defuturizing of young people, but they thought it was because of of climate change, not because of nuclear war. That for people who care about peace and who don't want nuclear war, people who care about the planet and don't want global climate catastrophe, we have to do something about it. We have to make a big change, and it's a big task, but it's the most pressing task. It seems to me that societies, if you look through the last couple centuries, when there's real sharp shifts, when there's radical transformations or revolutions, there's a lot of buildup before the actual events take place. There's all these subterranean changes in different parts of the population. We live under a capitalist system. The wars that are being fought which the U.S. can't even defeat the Taliban. I don't quite know how they really expect to defeat Russia or China, but that said, this is a capitalist system and these wars have class interests involved in them. I mean, working folks don't have any economic interests in the Middle East or South Asia or in the military industrial complex. We have to build a movement that's actually not simply an activist movement, but a movement with a vision. From our point of view, that vision is socialism. 
and meaning we have to take on the social and economic order, and there must be a radical transformation. That is, in fact, the solution. It seems daunting, but anything less than that seems utopian to me, because as long as these maniacs are in charge of foreign policy and they're doing it at the service of American capitalist corporations, the dangers will grow and grow. Anyway, I'll use that as my last little rant and let you get the final word. Well, in terms of the situation we're in, let's say with respect to Ukraine, everybody's talking about the war, but we ought to be talking about peace. What is necessary for peace? And there are two issues in Ukraine that are part of the diplomatic negotiations and are crucial to peace. One is that the Ukraine should be neutral and not part of NATO, and certainly not be part of NATO and be militarized and threatening Russia. We could guarantee the security of the Ukraine, of Kiev, without Ukraine being part of NATO. If Ukraine is brought into NATO, that pushes us towards a nuclear conflict, inevitably. And the other aspect is that the Ukraine civil war has to be solved. I mean, Kiev has been at war for eight years with the Donbas republics of Donetsk and Luhansk, and this is crucial to this whole conflict. And Kiev insists that the Donbas republics are not autonomous and can't be independent and but this creates a constant civil war up against the borders of Russia. This has to be solved. If a population does not want to be part of the Ukraine, it's the Russian-speaking population in those areas, then they ought to be able to have their autonomy, their own sovereignty. And certainly we should not risk a, a nuclear holocaust over a civil war that could be brought to an end. So those are crucial aspects in Ukraine. In terms of China, the United States is now moving in and saying that Taiwan is within the defense perimeter of China, even though Taiwan is part of China. And this then places us in the situation of the U.S. actually in a war conflict with China and a nuclear war conflict with China. We should not be doing that over Taiwan. We should not be threatening Chinese territory in this way. So these are crucial issues. At start, we need to go against the military industrial complex. We need to go against the U.S. first strike policy. The United States has a first strike policy with nuclear weapons involving both nuclear and non-nuclear powers. The United States is on record of never taking nuclear weapons off the table in any kind of conflict. We have to move away from that first strike policy. Even Russia at present, which is also a capitalist nation, but its policy is it will only use nuclear weapons to directly defend its own state. And that's very different than the U.S. policy, where the United States is on record of being willing to use nuclear weapons anywhere in the world, if it so deems. We cannot go forward with a policy like that without threatening the annihilation of humanity, global omnicide. So, and of course, like you say, socialism is geared to peace, towards equality, 
I think that the best definition of socialism for the 21st century is a society geared to substantive equality and ecological sustainability. It requires peace. It requires cooperation, democracy, which means the self-mobilization of the population in politics. And all of these things are necessary. We have to combat an irrational system that is willing to risk global omnicide for control of territory, for profits, for the accumulation within the military-industrial complex, for control of resources. And this is sort of built into the capitalist system, but we have to go against it, if only for human survival. We have two existential crises now. One is climate change, and the other one is the increasing dangers of nuclear war. We have to remove the latter so we can focus on the former. Otherwise, we will simply destroy human civilization and most of the human species. And there is very little doubt about it from a scientific perspective. Yeah. I mean, it's a dark prognosis. And at the same time, as you're saying, we have choices that can be made and all of us can be part of that and building those kind of movements for sustainability and for peace. Again, I want to urge those who watch or listen to our show to check out John's article, Notes on Exterminism for the 21st Century Ecology and Peace Movements. It's at Monthly Review, Monthly Review Online. You can also subscribe to the magazine and get it at home. By the way, you mentioned Einstein. You, your media outlet republished his very famous essay, Why Socialism, where Einstein makes the case for socialism. John Bellamy Foster, thank you so much for joining the Socialist Program. Thank you. Einstein published his article in Monthly Review in May 1949. When it was very hard to be coming out as a socialist, I might add. And we have to remember the power of the peace movement. In the 1980s, the nuclear freeze movement in the United States arose out of nowhere. Almost instantaneously, it seemed, spontaneously, communities and populations throughout the United States were organizing for a nuclear freeze. And it really had an effect, as well as the European disarmament movement, nuclear disarmament movement at that time. They basically shut down the nuclear arms race for a time. And we certainly need that now. There's no rational justification that you could ever provide for risking the population of the earth with a nuclear holocaust. I couldn't agree more. There were resolutions passed in city councils all over the country. Millions of people, literally millions of people were marching here in New York City at Grand Central. Millions in Europe. Anyway, you are right. John Bellamy Foster, thank you so much for joining the Socialist Program. Thank you. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. 
We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 